This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fig or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And we come to you on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome in, everyone, to week number two of your radio doctor. Dr. Marianne Ritchie is with us in studio. And Marianne, you live to deliver another broadcast. Welcome in on a Sunday morning. Thank you, Joe, and good morning. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. That's the truth, (laughs) and and, and I've got to say, after listening to our opening show uh, last Sunday, we are uh, super excited, I know you are, to be uh, on this big radio station in the Delaware Valley, Uh, and a great job by you last week, delivering some uh, incredible information. It's all about educating the public, and you did a great job in the opening show. Well, thank you, Joe. I have to say, I had some butterflies, but because of you and WPHT staff, especially my little Frank Canale. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And a hearty welcome back to our listeners. As mentioned, I'm Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie, your radio doctor. And last week, I felt very fortunate to have the chance to introduce myself on our first show. I'm a Philadelphia native, and I entered St. Joseph's University the third year they took women for students, and the ratio was great, six boys to one girl. Yeah. Then I attended Jefferson Medical College the last medical school in the country to take women, only 17% girls. More cute boys for me. Then I was one of the early women residents at Lankanaw Hospital. All of these experiences readied me to become the first woman to train in GI in New York City when I spent three years at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Women were just beginning to arrive on the medical scene, and the path was not easy, but I was determined to show my teachers, my patients, and myself that my work would be my calling card. When I came home to Philly, I was thrilled to start my career at Lankanaw Hospital, balancing practice with family life that included my husband, three small children, and my aging parents. And through the years, I was grateful to be at my mother's bedside in her final days, and it was clearly the right decision to leave work for a few years to help care for my father with dementia. So I've lived on both sides of the fence. I've had to hold back the tears when sharing devastating news with a patient, But I also know the pain of losing a parent, feeling hopeless as I watched cancer consume my sister, the urgency of rushing my child to an emergency room, and the absolute panic upon hearing the electric paddles shock my husband's heart back to a normal rhythm. My mission as your radio doctor is to help you learn in clear language about common diseases, how you can prevent them, how you recognize early symptoms when treatment can be more helpful, and give you the tools to make good decisions for yourself and your loved ones. Don't try to be Google doctor. 
Let me be your advocate. Each week, I will be your voice asking the questions, listen to concerns from your viewpoint, and then you'll be better prepared when you're in the doctor's office. I've come to believe that you are your childhood, and I had a very secure childhood. My parents promised me I could do anything if I believed in myself, worked hard, and said my prayers. Last week, I thanked my beautiful extended family and mentors. Today, I also want to thank my patients for entrusting me with their care, keeping me humble, and reminding me to be grateful to be a doctor. Dr. Marianne Ritchie is your radio doctor. She'll join you every Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Dr. Marianne, for the benefit uh, of new listeners just tuning in uh, this week before we get into our first commercial break and introduce our very special guest that is in studio, bring the listening audience back to the opening show. We had a great show. I know that the number one priority for you in leading up to the debut of your radio doctor last week was to educate the listeners. I thought you did a great job with that last week. Let's bring the listening audience back, if you will, just for a minute or two about last week's show. Well, thanks, Joe. Oftentimes, patients confuse heartburn with symptoms of a heart attack. So I'd like to remind our listeners that if you have chest pain and it radiates into your jaw, your shoulder, or your back, or if you just have back pain from nowhere or shoulder pain, any of those individually, you may have nausea, maybe even vomiting, sweaty, or dizziness, maybe even a feeling of what we call an impending sense of doom, meaning you feel overwhelmed and you can't explain why you're suddenly weak. Call 911 and do not drive yourself or the patient in your car. Chew an aspirin, either one regular size or four baby aspirin. Do not eat or drink anything else because if you do get sick or you're lying down for a test, you could aspirate, which means you could inhale your saliva or vomitus. Carry aspirin in your purse or your car. Be ready. And when you do have these symptoms, sit down or lie down to keep the blood flow into your head and keep your phone open to 911 so they can coach you until the ambulance arrives. This is your radio doctor on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We'll get started after the break. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And thank you so much for tuning in on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Doc? Now it gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest. Dr. Mike Savage. Dr. Savage is the Ralph J. Roberts Professor of Cardiology and the Director of the Cardiac Catheterization Lab at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital here in Philadelphia. He helped form the Jefferson Angioplasty Center, which is a second opinion center for high-risk patients with complex cardiovascular disease. His research has led to revolutionary advances in cardiac stents, and he now focuses on perfecting techniques for less invasive alternatives to heart surgery. With over 250 publications and a new book, Dr. Savage has received numerous honors for patient care, research, and teaching. He's a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and other prestigious national medical societies. But his most proud badge of honor is being a member of the Jefferson Medical College class of 1980. My classmate, hoorah. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Savage. Great to be here, Marianne. (laughs) This nice Sunday morning. So... 
Tell us now, we talked last week about symptoms of heart attacks. I mean, there are other heart diseases, but we're focusing on prevention of heart attacks, which takes so many lives. How do we make the diagnosis? What are the tests that are available? I'm sure there are many options. Well, this is a very important part uh, of cardiology because we're really fighting the number one leading cause of death in the United States, which is cardiovascular disease. And every year in this country, there are approximately 800,000 patients having a heart attack. That translates to about one every 40 seconds. So that's why, uh, as cardiologists, we're kept pretty busy. So when we are asked to see a patient and evaluate them for chest pain, uh, what we're really trying to determine is the chest pain due to a serious heart problem versus some less serious problems such as musculoskeletal, arthritic ailments, uh, acid reflux from the esophagus, and so forth. Um, so there are a variety of tests that are commonly used, usually starting with a simple electrocardiogram. But if a patient's not having ongoing symptoms, that often will be completely normal. So the other typical tests that will be employed will be an echocardiogram, often done in the office with ultrasound, a very non-invasive test. That's not looking at the arteries, but that's looking at the state of the heart muscle because the bottom line is we want to we maintain a strong heart muscle and make sure there's been no damage caused uh, from blocked arteries or other illnesses. Uh, the typical test that one would order for patients to evaluate chest pain is, is your stress test where patients are put on a treadmill, uh, hooked up to an electrocardiogram. Often there'll be some type of imaging machine like an ultrasound or a nuclear scan. Um, and this will be looking for signs that someone may have coronary disease or a blocked artery to the heart. So that's interesting. I'd like to point out that you mentioned somebody can have the word we use to describe the pain that can lead up to a heart attack is angina. So somebody can have symptoms of angina, or I guess some people say angina, and still have a normal cardiogram if they're not in the middle of an episode. And so I would think that if you go for your yearly physical, you might have a normal cardiogram and then you go home and the next time you have that burning, you say, ah, it's just, I have a normal EKG. I'm fine. Not so much. You have to tell your doctor if you have recurrent symptoms because sometimes even your doctor can't tell without further testing if it's real or Memorex. Is it heartburn? Or the other thing that can give you pretty bad chest pain is acid refluxing into your esophagus can cause esophageal spasm. And that can mimic heart attack pain and, and can be very confusing. And then the echo is, as Dr. Savage mentioned, a microphone over your chest. And it says, is that pump that's shaped like a fist, like an upside down pear almost, is it pumping evenly or is there a spot that looks slower than the rest? And all that information is very helpful. There are two types of stress tests, aren't there? One that's on the treadmill and the other one that you don't have to be exercising. So most commonly, uh, stress tests are done on a treadmill, but many patients, particularly if they're older or they have arthritic problems, may have trouble uh, going far enough or walking on the treadmill, in which case one can use what's called a pharmacologic stress test using a medication through an IV that supplants the part of the exercise. And just to explain uh, the important point that you made, which is why someone could have a heart problem but have a normal EKG. And that is, think of the arteries to the heart like the fuel lines to the engine. So if the, if the uh, a car is just uh, in park and idling, uh, there may not be a problem getting enough fuel to the engine, and therefore uh, the electrocardiogram, as the analogy, may be normal. And that's the idea behind the stress test is to, is to make the heart work harder, make the heart beat faster. And that's like stepping on the accelerator 
And that's what provokes what's called the ischemia, meaning signs that there's a lack of oxygen due to blockage in the arteries. So most of the time, if you're lucky, you do get a little warning because you say, hey, when I, every Thursday night when I lift that heavy trash can to put the trash out, I feel that elephant on my chest. Or if I go up steps, I feel a little heartburn. I wonder why. That could be a clue to call your doctor and say, I need to be checked. So then the next step might be cardiac catheter, catheterization, sorry, um, was Newspeak. Tell us about that, Dr. Savage, because I'm sure that's evolved into some really high-tech options. So a cardiac catheterization is the definitive test to look into uh, whether there's blockage in the arteries. Um, sometimes, uh, nowadays, we will not invasively look at the arteries with CAT scans, but the gold standard is still the heart catheterization. And um, that involves uh, an x-ray procedure. Uh, the catheter is a small tube like the size of a, a hollow uh, piece of spaghetti that's inserted into a peripheral artery and then under x-ray advanced to the heart. Um, and the dye is then injected through the catheter, and the dye is what shows up under the x-ray to tell us if there's blockage in the arteries where the blockages are, how many arteries, and how severe. Mm. And that kind of information really guides uh, the, the treatment options. Now, the cardiac catheterization has uh, had an interesting uh, hi history and evolution. The, the very first uh, cardiac catheterization is an interesting story. It was done over 90 years ago in Germany wow. by a, uh, a young, uh, what is essentially now a surgical resident, uh, by the name of Werner Forsman. And he had this concept that if he could thread a catheter into the chambers of the heart for patients that were in acute illnesses, uh, such as a heart attack, that they could infuse drugs to help the heart wow. or resuscitate the heart. I never knew this. So what Dr. Forsman did was um, he uh, uh, convinced one of the surgical nurses to get him, give him access uh, to the operating suite and, and did a, um, an incision in, in the... Uh, crease of the left elbow where, where a vein lies, and then he inserted uh, on himself a catheter which was made to be a urological catheter, mm. advanced it about 60 uh, centimeters, um, and then uh, having the catheter dangle out of his arm, had to walk to a different floor uh, where the x-ray suite was, and, and, and the nurse took a picture of the x-ray, the first heart, human heart catheterization. Uh, needless to say... We've come a long way since that day. Oh, my gosh. When you hear a story like that, you say, there is a gene for thrill-seeking. I don't know <laughs> that I could do that to myself. So tell us now. It's become so much more sophisticated. I hope, I hope he was recognized for that um, adventure. Uh, well, uh, initially, he was strongly criticized by of his course. superiors. Uh, but years later, he won the Nobel Prize in medicine for, well, thank for goodness that finding feet. Probably the Nobel Prize for bravery. <laughs> um, so... I know people in my own family have had cardiac catheterization, and not that anything that we do that's invasive or involves sedation is routine, but it's so much safer and, and gives us so much uh, clarity. Well, it's uh, become so routine now that uh, patients come in and go home the same day of the procedure. They don't even have to stay overnight. Uh, traditionally, the, the approach to the catheterization was to anesthetize and put the catheter in the uh, artery at the top of the leg mm -hmm. and the crease of the leg. And uh, nowadays, um, we more commonly will do it through the artery in the wrist called the radial artery because that has certain advantages. Um, the, when we do the procedure from the leg, the artery is deep and we have to watch for bleeding afterwards, whereas from the wrist, 
The artery is very superficial, very easy to control for bleeding once the catheter is removed because a puncture is made in the artery. Uh, and patients love it because they don't have to lay in bed for several hours. They can sit up right away. And uh, so this is this has really streamlined the procedure uh, with the, really it's done now with local anesthetics and a little twilight uh, with the very minimum discomfort in patients that typically come in and go home the same day of the procedure. Well, I just remember as a resident when we'd have a patient go for a cardiac cath and they had the uh, incision in the groin, would put sandbags over the site so that it would control the bleeding because they could get terrible swelling and continued uh, seepage there. So the recovery time is better if we can take advantage of the wrist artery. Um, are the risks any less with wrist versus groin other than the, the local? It's well, pretty it's, much the same test. It's a smaller artery. So there are certain uh, complicated procedures where larger catheters are needed, where, uh, where one still goes oh. through the what's called the femoral or leg approach. Um, right. And some people uh, may have small arteries or the arteries may be um, disease. So there are still uh, some patients where we still do it through the, the old-fashioned way. Can I ask one question? Yeah, sure. Uh, my brother-in-law had uh, was put in a position about six years ago to have um, the procedure. And I'm just curious to how he ended up in the hospital. He pulled over on the side of the road and was experiencing some sort of an ill feeling that ultimately led him to nine one one, which led him to the hospital, which led to the procedure. What was he feeling, Doc, in that moment? Because he can't remember. He doesn't know why he pulled over, but he pulled over off the side of the road. I mean, the, the typical symptom one has, and it sounds like he probably had a heart attack, um, would be the sense of an elephant sitting on your chest. That's mm -hmm. the most common symptom. Um, but it the symptoms can be uh, tricky because, as Marianne said earlier in the segment, some people can have the pain just in the jaw or down the arm or be short of breath and sweaty. Uh, but those would be the kind of typical symptoms why he knew that there was some problem. And fortunately, he did the right thing calling 911. And that's such an important lesson because by getting the uh, emergency staff and being able to um, resuscitate the heart, by doing that, by getting to the emergency room safely, you've cut your chance of dying from that heart attack in half. So that's such an important point. Well, plus, you figure if that pump is in charge of sending blood to your brain and your kidneys and your GI tract, maybe that's why you feel nausea. If it's pumping, uh, I don't know what the volume is, but if it pumps out five gallons instead of 10 gallons, you're gonna, your head's going to feel light and dizzy, your GI tract, you're going to feel nausea. But that impending sense of doom might be because his blood pressure was dropping and he just kind of felt, oh, what's happening? I can't explain it. I can't put my finger on it. We're going to talk a little bit about the ischemia trial as well, which means that maybe we don't always have to go to cardiac catheterization with stents. Well, the, um, uh, once we have the catheterization, that will determine how serious the condition, meaning that the extent of the blockage, the number of blockages, where the blockages are. And that really directs what the therapy is, because we have three broad options. First and foremost is medication, um, which uh, is important in any patient with coronary disease, particularly things like cholesterol-lowering medicines, statins, and aspirin. Um, and for patients that have more serious disease or more unstable disease, we have the procedures uh, such as bypass surgery in very extensive disease or angioplasty with balloons and stents, which we can, uh, we can talk more about. 
So if there's a rubber band around the garden hose, you go with a stent and you open the highway again. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Mary, Dr. Marianne. If you're tuning in for the very first Sunday, this is show two of your radio doctor. And we thank you so much for tuning in on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. One reminder for the listening audience coming up following the show, The Sounds of Sinatra with Sid Mark on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on Radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Back here on Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. If you have a question or want to connect with Dr. Marianne, your radio doctor, drop her an email at doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. Thank you, Joe. We're here with Dr. Mike Savage from Jefferson University Hospital, professor of cardiology and head of the cardiac cath lab. So, Mike, tell us when the time comes for cardiac catheterization, either because a person's having symptoms off and on, or they're rushed to the hospital with a possible heart attack. Who gets stents? Who doesn't? So the, uh, the treatment options are dictated by two things. One is the acuteness of the patient, meaning if you're having a heart attack, then you have a high priority. You've got to try and get those arteries open, as opposed to the patients that have minimal or very stable uh, symptoms. Uh, where often they can be treated more conservatively. So let's take the, the most clear-cut situation where angioplasty, which is, again, where a balloon is used to open the artery, and then a little coil, which is what the stent is, is placed once the artery is open, and the stent keeps the artery propped open, uh, much like a little intravascular scaffold to prevent the artery from collapsing mm. and recoiling. Uh, so it's the combination of the balloon and stent. So patient having a heart attack, the goal is, once that patient uh, meets medical contact, typically in the emergency room, uh, we have a, like a trauma squad of cardiologists, nurses, and technicians that are called in to come in and get that artery open in the cath lab with an angioplasty, ideally in less than 90 minutes from when that patient comes. That's called the door to balloon time. Yes. Uh, and the gold standard is, is less than 90 minutes, and ideally, the less, the better. Um, now, contrast that to a patient uh, that has very minimal symptoms or maybe even no symptoms, may ha- maybe has an abnormal stress test, uh, and if they really push themselves, they may get a little winded or a little bit of chest pressure, uh, but it occurs uh, uh, infrequently and, and is relieved immediately when they rest. That is what we would call stable angina. And in that type of patient, uh, often more conservative treatments uh, like medication and prevention measures alone can be utilized. Um, In patients that have blockage in the main artery of the heart, uh, we would usually still uh, recommend procedures, and and bypass surgery actually is done even more than stents in that situation. Um, But in patients uh, with less severe disease and stable symptoms, um, we now know that we can treat most of these patients with an initial non-procedural option with medication and lifestyle measures. And this was taught to us by a very uh, large trial called the ischemia trial, which actually was presented last November here in Philly 
uh, during the American Heart Association meetings. It was really the, the big splash of that American Heart Association uh, major meeting. And this was a study of over 5,000 patients that had minimal stable symptoms and, um, but had blockage in their coronary arteries for the most part. And half of the patients were assigned to a conservative approach with medical therapy uh, like cholesterol-lowering, aspirin, treating the blood pressure, uh, and lifestyle measures. Uh, and the other half were treated, again, with medication and lifestyle measures, but were treated with procedures to try and, to try and augment the, the blocked arteries, meaning either stents in three-quarters of the patients or bypass in a quarter of the patients. And um, contrary to what many people would think, uh, the patients that had the procedures to open the blockages uh, only benefited in terms of less chest symptoms. There was absolutely no difference in their life expectancy, and there was actually no reduction in their risk of having a heart attack by having a more uh, a procedural uh, strategy as opposed to a more conservative strategy. So, so currently, this has shifted and reinforced the idea that in patients with minimal or stable symptoms, you don't need to rush everyone to a procedure, but the procedures are always as plan B and plan C if the symptoms are not controllable with medication. Well, it makes sense. And, and you know, I, we try to paint a picture for our listeners and explain the imagery of your work. And we see this pipe that has clogging in it, and you go in with a balloon to open that narrowing and then keep it open with your scaffolding, your stent. And even that's evolved. I uh, just learned a few years ago that you have stents that may seep or elude drugs. But I was trying to think about um, a stent. Is it kind of like uh, a replaced hip joint or knee joint? They have a, a, a lifespan of, say, 10 years. How long does a stent last? I guess it depends on the person and how uh, compliant they are after they get the stent inserted. Okay, I'm not going to go back to smoking. I'm not going to go back to that. I'm sure all those puzzle pieces are different for each person. Could you tell us a little about how the lifespan of a stent and... Sure. Well, the, uh, the stent is uh, a little metallic coil-like structure. Think of the, um, not a, an exact replica, but think of the coil that's in a big pen. Uh, it gives you a little bit of a visual what that looks like. And that's expanded by the balloon, and it becomes embedded in the wall of that artery mm. to prevent the artery from, from collapsing back down or recoiling. And, uh, um, and so that, that has, is, has had its own history of evolution of how we've gotten to, to where we are with the stents. Um, the first angioplasty procedure was performed back in 1977, and this was with crude equipment uh, with balloons uh, with, a, with a genius uh, Swiss doctor by the name of Andreas Grunzik. Um, it took uh, then uh, another decade and a half to develop really the very first stents, um, and the, uh, we had the, the privilege of actually working at that time in the mid-1990s developing what was called the Palmash Shad stent, which was really the groundbreaker that, uh, that showed that the stents really improved outcomes for patients compared to just opening the artery with the, the balloon alone. And, uh, and this was shown in a, in a series of randomized trials that, that we had published uh, in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine. Um, the, the problem with stents after you have a stent, uh, though it can be twofold, one, you have to take medication, aspirin and a, a medicine like Plavix-like medicine to try and prevent blood clots. And the bigger problem uh, is what's called re-stenosis. 
uh, re as in recurrent and stenosis as in blockage. So re-stenosis refers to the re-blocking of the artery after a stent uh, due to scar-like tissue that forms as the artery recovers from the injury of the procedure that's done to open it. So it's scar tissue because you've been someplace where you're not welcome and or re-blockage because of the cholesterol or fatty food would cause the original blockage. Yeah, that's a great- Two separate animals. And that's a a great uh, point, uh, that it's really not cholesterol-driven. It really seems to be part of the uh, healing from the injury. And and the analogy I use is if if you have a cut in your skin, that wound is going to heal, and it's going to heal first with a blood clot, and then scar tissue is going to take over. And if we're talking about these little pipes in the coronary arteries, we're talking about two or three millimeters in diameter, very tiny pipe. Mm. doesn't take a lot of scar tissue to form as the artery heals from the injury to re-block the artery. So a couple of interesting things go through my mind. A stent is not a cure. It's in there, and it's not what it used to be. It's not 100% open. It's better. We have blood flow, so you don't feel dizzy. You're, You're losing those symptoms. But it's so important to be compliant or be faithful to taking both aspirin and the blood thinner, usually Plavix. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a really important point. So many times the patients have a stents or bypass surgery, they think it's actually a cure for the disease, and it's not. No. It, it takes, it's improving the blood flow to the heart, but other blockages can form. Uh, elsewhere, it can form in the stent, it can form mm. in the bypass. Jeez. So it's so important that in addition to the procedures, the patients mm. recognize they need to take care of themselves, uh, lose weight, uh, uh, watch their cholesterol, stop smoking, and so on. Because uh, even if you lose weight and it's not decreasing your likelihood for more blockages, it's less stress workload on your heart that's now compromised. We can look at it that way as well. Um, so. As a GI doctor, I often prescribed acid-lowering medications, like the granddaddy of them is Prilosec, generic as Omeprazole. But there were a lot of spinoffs because they had other uh, apps or other positives. One of them, called Protonics, for many years we were told, if somebody's taking Plavix, Omeprazole and the other acid-lowering drugs can interfere with the effect of the Plavix, so only use Protonics. That's old news. There's no longer restriction of Prilosec-type drugs, so don't worry if you're taking one of those medicines. It should not interfere with the Plavix. Am I right with that? Uh, that's absolutely correct. And, and there, are, there are actually some newer medicines that are a little more effective that are commonly used in patients with heart attacks. Uh, Berlinta uh, and Prasagril are some of the common names. These are the kind of newer generations um, that are often patients may be on in addition uh, rather than Plavix. Uh, and these medicines aren't continued indefinitely in most patients are usually continued for a year or sometimes a little bit longer during that higher risk period. And then most patients will continue on a low dose of so-called baby aspirin for uh, long-term therapy. So that's good to know as well, because if you are on a blood thinner, it's kind of scary because you think if I fall and hit my head. So you have to really keep that in mind as well. Are there any other drugs that might interfere with the good benefit, the benefits of aspirin or Plavix? Uh, fortunately, there's not uh, many medications that we have to worry about. Uh, the biggest problem we face is patients not being compliant with their medicine. Got it. And so that's, that's the take-home message is uh, if, you're on, if you've had a standard, if you had a bypass, don't stop in your heart medicines until you talk to your cardiologist. 
Thank this you, Dr. Mike Savage. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We'll get to a commercial break here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Back in a moment. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And welcome back to your radio doctor. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie. So happy to have our guest, Dr. Mike Savage from Jefferson University Hospital. Mike, we've been talking about cardiac catheterization as the gold standard to say, is there a blockage in the artery that feeds the heart itself? There are several of those arteries. How do we determine if there are blockages? How do we determine the therapy? And now we're talking about how we keep that repaired artery open and flowing and getting blood to your heart so it can pump the blood to your brain and all your vital organs. And, uh, you know, the, the most uh, frequent procedure for doing that is not surgery nowadays. It's done in the cath lab with uh, angioplasty and, and placement of the stents. And we talked a little bit about the biggest problem historically with the stents has been this problem of restenosis. We open it up with the stent, and then several months or even a few years later, the blockage comes back and the patient's symptoms come back. The good news there is we've had great medical progress with improvement in the stents, and we now have stents that have a medication uh, which coats the stent and, and gets seeped into the vessel wall. And that medication is designed to inhibit and block the growth of the scar tissue. So the arteries are less likely to develop this reblockage or restenosis. So when a person gets a stent, do you always start with a drug? Eluding is the word that cardiologists use. I'm telling that to the listeners, not you. I know you know that. So do you start with a plain stent or some, or do you always start with a drug seeping stent? So uh, the early uh, initial types of drug eluding stents are uh, for patients, we often call it the medicated stents, uh, did have an issue with blood clotting. Uh, and uh, uh, that required a lot of ingenious engineering work. And the stents have now been improved such that it's very, very rare not to use the so-called medicated stent now to take I advantage see. of that. Mm-hmm. But even with the medicated stents, um, occasional patients can be frustrated by this problem of restenosis. And, uh, and we have some, I'm glad to say, some, uh, some options even for these patients that develop restenosis over and over again. Um, we had uh, this one uh, woman from South Philadelphia who is really uh, quite an admirable trooper. She's been through a lot. She's been a cancer survivor. She's had Aww. some abuse during her, her life, but she keeps, mm. she keeps on ticking. Mm. And um, she um, required a hysterectomy at a, at a community hospital in the Philadelphia area. And postoperatively, she suffered a large heart attack. Oh, my. And they took her emergently to the cath lab appropriately, and they were able to open up her blocked artery and place two of these medicated stents. Um, and she did well for a time, but within 10 months, uh, was back again with chest pain and shortness of breath mm. at another catheterization and a third stent. Seven months after that, um, similar symptoms and deja vu all over again, a fourth and fifth stent went in. Um, six months after that, now we're talking about all within a two years time, she required a fourth procedure uh, uh, where a balloon was used, uh, but not, not, not more than the fifth stent placed at, again, an outside hospital to reopen that artery. Now, quick question to clarify. So she had two stents to begin with, recurrent symptoms, brought her back. Are we reopening the original two sites or have other arteries 
become blocked and we're adding them in? Great question. This is all restenosis. It's oh all at the original artery of the original problem. And so this fortunately is a, a minority of the patients we see that have these recurrent problems with restenosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so it's a real challenge of what to do. Um, now, fortunately, we have an answer for many of these patients, and it's a procedure called coronary brachytherapy. Um, and that was what was recommended uh, by the community hospital after her last procedure. And uh, they said that she should go to either New York or D.C. to have the procedure done. Um, fortunately, our, our patient was savvy and used the Internet and found that this is being done in Philadelphia. I'm Jefferson. sorry. I'm going to say she was savagey. Go on. <laughs> and uh, so, so she found us through the Internet and uh, came. And uh, when she developed, again, more symptoms a few months later, uh, we were able to uh, reopen the artery, first with a, a laser to clear out some of the scar tissue, uh, a balloon to fully expand it, and then uh, in concert uh, with a team effort with our radiation oncology doctors, uh, they were able to, to treat the artery uh, through the catheter with, with a, a several-minute exposure of radiation that zaps the cells that cause the scar tissue to form. So it's not an implant. It's just a brief exposure of radiation at the time of our angioplasty to keep that artery open. Oh, and I see. And after having um, four procedures and five stents within a two-year period, uh, we recently saw her now. Now she's about uh, three to three and a half years out and, and uh, doing quite well. So does the prefix brachy suggest that it's a short therapy? Uh, it means local delivery. I gotcha. Yeah, as opposed to an outside x-ray beam. As opposed beam. to extensive. So, so that way it doesn't damage healthy tissue. It just treats the uh, part of the artery where the action needs to be. So targeted therapy, just say if somebody has uh, cancer in their abdomen, we shield the rest of their belly and try to focus on the enemy and protect the other area that's not affected by whatever the condition is. And that's exactly the concept. And that's where brachytherapy really came out of cancer treatment uh, with this idea that we would apply that same uh, uh, concept in the coronary arteries. So is that what you'd call an achy, breaky heart? No, um, I won't go there. So now the next app, if we like to use millennial terms, we've had drug eluding stents. We have brachytherapy. But now I think Dr. Savage, who's so smart and so internationally brilliant, there's a drug eluding balloon. That seems to be the new app. It's like uh, you know, better glue on Post-its. Uh, you have to remind me what address I need to send you the check for those nice comments uh, <laughs> uh, uh, after the show. Your mother um, already sent me a check. So, um, so one of the one of the um, really um, stimulating parts of working at a, a university center like Jefferson is is that uh, we're always developing new therapies and being on the cutting edge of of what we can offer. And uh, uh, so we've run through the gamut from the original stents to now the the improved drug eluding stents. And for those few patients where the drug eluding stents don't hold up, uh, brachytherapy. Uh, one of the exciting things that we are currently involved in, and uh, uh, because this hasn't uh, still has some review from the FDA, so I can't say too much in terms of specific details, but we do expect at some time within the next few months in this, this year to initiate a first trial in the United States oh my. where we're, we're offering patients whose stents develop mm-hmm. restenosis to try and treat the artery without putting a new stent in uh, using a balloon that both dilates the blockage 
and the, the balloon will have these microscopic little holes or pores that, that the medication that comes on the stents uh, will seep into the vessel wall and inhibit that scar tissue forming without having to put more metal in the artery. Because there is some concept that, that as we keep putting stents upon stents, we're putting more and more of this foreign material yes. or metal in the artery. And, uh, and to try and treat the artery with the medication to prevent the scar tissue without putting new metal in is a very appealing concept. So, so this is something that we're really looking forward to initiating uh, probably in several months uh, down the road. That is fascinating because just like a splinter in your finger, your body says, oh, we have to attack that foreign body and get it out. So you get a blister or white blood cells or infection around it. So let's wrap up for our listeners. What do they need to walk away with? Uh, they need to walk away with, if you're having chest pain, uh, don't ignore it. Get it evaluated. And we have a lot of treatment options. Uh, there's very few patients that we can't help these days. And if you do have, t- and you do have coronary problems and you do need a stent or a bypass operation, don't think of it as a cure. Take care of yourself. Be compliant with your medications. That will help keep you out of trouble. Take advantage of that second second shot to do well. It's a, s- a second lease it's on life. Exactly chance. right. Yes. Really good stuff here on a Sunday morning with your special guest uh, on your radio doctor, um, Dr. Mary Ann, before we say goodbye to our listening audience, uh, many of the listeners tuning in this morning uh, perhaps heard uh, one of the radio commercials airing during the show talking about the Blue Lights campaign. I know we're in February, but literally March is right around the corner. Absolutely. You know, many people say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I say the way to a man's or a woman's heart is through their colon. And we're combining heart and colon because we have a cardiologist today and I'm a GI doctor. Many years ago, I trained at Sloan Kettering and I was humbled to see 20 stories of cancer patients. And as a GI doctor, what I've learned is the number one cause of cancer death is lung cancer. But we can't x-ray people once a year looking for cancer. The, The radiation could hurt you. Mammograms pick up early cancer. Colonoscopy finds and removes pre-cancer. What's not to like? Okay, the prep's a little ooey, and it's time out of work, but it sure as heck beats radiation and chemotherapy and surgery. So the pink campaigns have done wonderful things in getting women, encouraging them to get their mammograms. We started a blue campaign about 10 years ago. About 30 buildings in Philadelphia are lit up in blue, the state capitol, and I've gotten it to other counties throughout the state. Please think about buying a blue light for your porch, a strand of blue lights on the bush in front of your house or in the doorway at your business or um, where you work or because colon cancer takes more lives than breast cancer. That's hard to believe. When we combine men and women, it's beatable and treatable. If we get the message out and urge people that this is a clear and present danger and knowing that there's a rising uh, number of younger people below the age of 45 and we're trying to get people screened at an earlier age. And if you want more information, you can go, you can easily visit online, bluelightscampaign.com. Thank you for listening. Come back next week. Your health is your wealth. That's going to do it for the... This week's edition of Your Radio Doctor. Special thanks to our special guest, Dr. Michael Savage, uh, who joined us uh, in the studio. And a special thanks to all of our listeners 
tuning in on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.